This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show number 230, and I have a wonderful continuation of our People and Planet series, interviewing some real pioneers uh, across all aspects of leading a Lotox life. Sandra Goldmark, or I should say Professor Sandra Goldmark, is our guest today, and uh, she is a an incredible woman uh, on one side has had a very regular, normal experience as a new mother in the low-tox space, starting to kind of wake up to things. Uh, she was short on sleep, short on closet space, her vacuum cleaner broke, toaster broke, the strap on her backpack, and she started to kind of just think, why can't I easily get these fixed? Why do I always have to buy something new when things are broken, especially big things like that, that when they go to landfill, that has a serious impact. There's very little recycling happening uh, and it's a big, big issue. So this was her big wake-up call uh, on the sustainability front and through a bit of research, uh, through her smarts, uh, and uh, training in uh, theatre, actually, um, and uh, set design, she started to think about the idea of uh, repairing and how we might actually uh, be able to create more direct paths to fixing stuff. So her new book, Fixation, How to Have Stuff Without Breaking the Planet, is awesome. And uh, that's how I came across her work. So I'm really excited to have her on the show today. So in terms of her professional life, she's a designer, teacher, an entrepreneur, and her work focuses on circular economy solutions to overconsumption and climate change. Uh, She's an associate professor of the professional practice in theatre and the director of campus sustainability and climate action at Bernard in the States. Uh, She has a BA in American history and literature from Harvard, an MFA in design from Yale School of Drama, and uh, has spent many uh, years uh, in New York uh, on uh, set design And I found that really fascinating to talk to her about as well, because often the wake up call sometimes comes from a professional experience, a personal experience. um, And for her, it was really a bit of both uh, looking at set design and thinking, my gosh, you know, we pack down these sets and it all goes and then we start again. How can we make all of this more circular? So she's done some super groovy things like open up pop up repair stores in New York City. And uh, we're going to talk about all of that today. So I'll kick into that conversation in just a little minute. I want to welcome our new Lotox Club members. For those of you who don't know, it's a space that you can support the podcast uh, and you can also get a stack of wonderful value. So for $49 Australian a year, you join the club, you receive access to our private membership uh, Facebook group. Some really excellent supportive discussions happen there, really useful kind of brains trust, if you like. And um, we also have 50% off all of our Lotox courses. We have different experts that run webinars and practitioner and uh, uh, specialist threads for people to ask questions of professionals across different Lotox topics. And uh, and what else do we do? We have the year, the and not the annual or yearly, the monthly Lotox Clubber book. So we create an ebook. We distribute it. It's on a topic of either personal health, sustainability. Uh, we've done ethical finance. We've done clean air ideas. You know, around improving indoor air quality at home. Uh, this month we're looking at how to tap into the power of knowing your cycle better and actually supporting your cycle better, uh, even into perimenopause and menopause. So there's a whole bunch of fantastic topics and we really just do them as a big deep dive on topics that people have been interested about or asking questions around. Uh, and I also do a monthly Q and A, which I'm actually just about to jump in and do tomorrow. So $49 a 
Australian a year, so that's like 30, 35 American or um, Euro. Uh, And I make it accessible to everybody because I hate super expensive memberships that are quite exclusive. I just want everybody to be able to come in, be a part of a great community. No trolling, of course, because you have that little paywall uh, that protects us from the crazies and uh, and a stack of wonderful value. So come join us. Uh, you just have to hit the lowtoxlife.com uh, homepage explore tab and it's the very first uh, option that comes from that drop down. I'll see you in there. Uh, now, two things of note. Uh, last week we had the wonderful Jarvis Smith on the show uh, from My Green Pod. Uh, he is uh, the founder of not only the My Green Pod digital magazine, uh, and he has a long history, as you would have heard in last week's show, partnering with the likes of National Geographic, partnering with the likes of The Guardian uh, to get eco publishing topics to the forefront of um, people's uh, consumption of information to really start raising these key issues to a much more mass. Uh, exposed level, which is so exciting. Um, And you heard all about his story of actually learning to build a life on a um, landfill last week. Anyway, uh, I just want to give a shout out to the My Green Pod quarterly digital magazine. It is excellent. And you can jump to mygreenpod.com forward slash subscribe to receive that goodness uh, once a season. And uh, it really is just a fantastic wealth of collections of, of different ways to live better for people and planet. Um, and, uh, and I love it. And I think you will too. And of course, our major sponsor this month is Republica Organic, uh, the best uh, coffee. And even if you're still a pod closet pod user, there is an option for biodegradable pods that degrade at about the same speed as um, orange peel. So really fast and made from bioplastics, so uh, not petroleum plastics. And uh, I think that's a really great step forward if you can't quite let go of your pod machine, but they have excellent beans and ground uh, coffee as well, as well as pretty much the only tasting, only decent tasting, in fact, better than decent, yummy tasting uh, ground, uh, sorry, instant coffees. So I really love having a stash of their decaf at my mum-in-law's house for when I fancy a coffee uh, there because I'm more of a decaf drinker. Uh, myself. And as a mold recovery person, I've never had a reaction from Republica Organic. So I tend to stick to Republica Organic and uh, uh, um, coffee companies in general that have done some mold testing. Uh, But uh, I I just wanted to kind of flag that because often a lot of people react to coffees and teas because of the way that the leaves and beans are processed. Uh, It can... um, allow mould to proliferate along the production process. I never had an issue, never had palpitations after um, drinking a Republica coffee. So for my mouldies out there, that's a really big uh, tick uh, in terms of uh, safety from moving forward and enjoying your coffee experience without having any negative health impacts. Uh, There's some pretty groovy research around coffee and brain function, coffee and uh, exercise and in terms of, you know, giving you a little bit more juice in your workout uh, and, of course, um, for concentration and focus uh, and even uh, cardiovascular. Uh, one or two cups a day seems to actually do better than it does hinder uh, our cardiovascular outlook. So I think there's some fabulous reasons to jump into a cup. And uh, Republica Organic with their ethics and impact mission, with their multi-award winning range. Uh, The signature beans are gorgeous. The Melbourne range is gorgeous. Uh, I, um, my mum really likes the New York pod capsules. She's ditched the Nespresso uh, so that she can actually have a much more traceable ethical brand to support. And of course, a local Australian business for the Aussies. But the Americans can grab their Republica on Amazon uh, as well. So you guys can actually get in and amongst this one, uh, which I love being able to say our US listeners can, because there's thousands and thousands of you every week. and, uh, And it makes me happy to know that what I'm rambling on about right now is something you can jump on and enjoy as well. 
So I have a giveaway for you. All you need to do is jump into the comment thread of the show notes. So lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast, and then jump on today's show or last week's and write in the show notes why you would like to win $200 worth of products from the Republica range. And the awesome thing about this giveaway is they're not deciding what you get. You actually get to jump into their online store and construct your $200 hamper yourself. So that means it will be exactly what you want and you won't be left with things in the range that either you don't use or you're not going to make the most of. Uh, So I really love that about this giveaway and I urge you quickly to get in and amongst it this week because we will be announcing the winner in a couple of weeks' time. So you've only got two more weeks to join that uh, giveaway. So that is it from me on our wonderful brands, um, uh, our wonderful show sponsor, Republica Organics. Sorry. My gosh, I'm tongue tied this morning. Uh, and now we can head to this incredible chat with Sandra Goldmark on all good things about the circular economy, how we can start supporting it more and how we can have stuff without feeling like we're breaking the planet, which I think is really important for our mental health as well. Enjoy, guys. Hello, Sandra. How are you? Hi, Alex. So nice to see you. Thank you for having me. I am very excited about this conversation. It is a topic that we discuss constantly uh, and one where often people feel paralyzed or guilty or ashamed of having to buy something. And today, I think through your personal story, through your awesome book, Uh, and some of the work you've done, I feel like people are going to be able to move forward feeling a little kinder to themselves and a little more purposeful in general. So this is great. Um, I, yeah. Yeah. And I want to start by asking um, a question around childhood, because I think it's always interesting how childhood looks for people who then go on to be educators or activists in this space. Uh, what was childhood like for you? Did you have hippie parents, farmers connected to nature or a city girl with a, a, an epiphany later in life? It's funny. Um, so uh, I grew up in New York. My mom uh, is French, moved here, you know, when she married my dad and my dad was American. Um, so I, I grew up with the, with those two cultures are not so wildly different, but I certainly felt it, especially around actually questions of, um, food particularly oh my gosh me too I have a French <laughs> mom as well so oh, I am um, yeah. yeah like you know there's it's just a culture and um they were not particularly my mom is not particularly environmentalist my dad has always had an interest in the environment and it's funny actually I remember being in the car when I must have been like seven or eight I have two older sisters and he you know this was so this was what 1982 pretty early 85 maybe. And he was, he turned to us and he said, you know, one of you three girls should really be a climatologist. This is going to be a really big topic, you know, and I think you, one of you guys should work on it. And we're like, okay, whatever, dad. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and like, Career's counseling a seven-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> but then of course, I'm not at all a climatologist, but funnily enough, years later, I have taken a lot from that French culture in terms of healthy food, healthy living, dealing with your house, with your stuff that I get from my mom and blended that in a way with my dad's passion for the environment and um, belief that climate change is like a really important issue that we should work on. And, and funnily enough, those two um, threads have really come together in this work on stuff. Interesting. I love that. And we were chatting before we hit record about uh, my audience and who they are and I said often people have like a health event or um, a big breakup or something that just kind of trips the switch on life and really forces you to reevaluate, look outside the box. Have you ever had moments like that yourself? Yeah, it's funny. Like the official story of my book is that this kind of breakthrough in terms of really rethinking stuff came when a bunch of stuff broke around the house on maternity leave. And that is true. But there's also a little bit of backstory, like, um, you know, there's the theater work that I did. Oh, I can see the sun setting and the That's New York beautiful. light coming in. Um, there's this backstory of working in theater and creating so much waste over the years and feeling this cognitive dissonance. But even hidden beneath that, when I was looking at your site and all the work you do surrounding food, 
um, I had an episode uh, after my first son was born of ulcerative colitis, where all of a sudden a person who had grown up, you know, eating everything, French food, but like never, no allergies, no, no food problems. All of a sudden after that first child was hit with like this horrible, horrible, really bad condition that I was told was chronic and I was going to be on medicine till the day I died and there was nothing to be done about it. Mm. And I thought, really? (laughs) 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 This doesn't sound quite right. And I remember saying to my doctor is, do you think it's the food? And he was like, oh no, just take these pills. The food won't do anything. And I was like, I don't buy this. So, so in a funny way, like talking with you, I realized that my journey um, in terms of thinking about stuff Mm really does relate or maybe even start with my personal journey with food because I was hit so hard by illness and feeling like all of a sudden these things I had taken for granted, the way I had had been eating or consuming for my whole life was literally making me sick to the point where I thought I was going to die. And it did, it did fuel this kind of break where I was like, I can't do this anymore. I can't eat the way I thought I could eat. I can't create waste designing for theater the way I thought I could. And I can't, I can't deal with this system anymore where everything I'm putting in my body and bringing in my home feels, feels horrible. Mm. Sounds pretty grim, but actually it was like an empowering process. (laughs) Yes, no, and it totally is. I'm writing about that very thing uh, in my next book and just trying to unpack all those little moments in your life that, you know, take away another layer of the onion so you can get deeper into questions around why and purpose and what really is a better North Star to follow. And, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. And so many times it is hardship and unexpected duress that force us to peel back another layer rather right. than... Like you know, because if it's easy, then you don't have to think. state of the world today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unexpected duress. Will it, will it provoke a change? We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag 2020. Um, <laughs> so you mentioned you worked in the theatre. Uh, I'm curious to know how that started to kind of disgust you in a way and you're just like, oh, my gosh, this is just so much stuff and there's so much waste. It sounds like that was a a huge uh, part of your journey as well. It was, yeah. So I, as a set designer, right, my job for many, many years and costumes was to figure out the stuff on stage. What is the space we're in and what are we filling it with? So really on a day-to-day basis, I was either making or buying huge amounts of material objects to put on stage. And so when I started like having this kind of break and questioning everything, I started looking at that and saying, you know, like there I am at home, I care about the environment theoretically. So there I am at home, like rinsing my yogurt cups and bringing my little canvas bag to the supermarket. And then I would go to work and just create literally dumpster after dumpster full of garbage every show. So again, this like moment of breakage where you're like, this makes no sense. I can't, I can't do this anymore. But at the same time, I had this knowledge, right? Because I was a theater designer, I know a lot about stuff. Like I know how to make it, I know how to get it, I know where it comes from, right? I started learning where it comes from was part of the problem. (laughs) I I knew, you know, I know how to transform it. And of course I we knew how to fix it. So all of that knowledge in a way, I was able to say, okay, I I I can't there's a problem here, but but maybe there's a little silver lining and that we could take the the skills and the practices we have in theater and 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 like kind of put our put our powers to work for good (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah um and uh just because I know several people absolutely love the theater and New York who are listening uh, any shows we know oh where I made so much garbage yeah Oh, I, d- I don't know. I mean, the what was the show that broke the camel's back? <laughs> oh, wow. There probably would have been one, hey, where it's like, oh, my several. gosh. There's nothing probably that people would recognize. But I remember I did do a musical uh, in the city where I probably shouldn't name names, but um, I was trying to kind of convince the director and the choreographer to, to use this lower 
um, toxicity sort of material. And this was back in probably 2010, 2011, where you still had to kind of be secretive if you were environmental. Yes, I know. Like hippie Everybody was like, was very right. much a thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I remember somebody, one of them was like, oh, this is so tiresome. And I was like, you won't say this is, you won't think this is tiresome when you're canoeing to work in Midtown. <laughs> Good on I got, you. I got all snippy about it. <laughs> but it was one of those moments where I was like, this is ridiculous. Like mm. we need to change. It was another kind of break, a cognitive dissonance moment. But all of that, as you know, turned into all of those things funneled into the repair shops ultimately, which was like one of my containers for all of this work for, mm. for about seven years. I did a lot of work in theater about changing and I still am. I'm changing our practices in theater but I started really funneling all these questions into the repair shops. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so that was sort of initially a more personal journey, right? And we talk about the toaster moment and that moment as a young parent with like, what was it? Two or three major things breaking at the same time. I guess minor things. It just shows like, you know, it was a toaster, a vacuum, a lamp, a backpack. Yeah. So I'm home on maternity leave and a bunch of stuff breaks around the house. And I thought I was very sleep deprived and I just, I I was stubborn. Like I didn't want to buy a new one. And I thought, this is crazy. Why do I have to, why can't I get this vacuum fixed? It felt so, so dumb, frankly. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's like you were saying at the theater um, with your joke about canoeing Midtown, it's really crazy how we have to defend caring about the planet, you know, Right. It's and that those choices are so bizarre. Hard. Yeah. It's quite bizarre that it's so upstream um, and uphill to, to deal with things that appropriate, like what you would think if you talk about the Iroquois nation's seven generation principle, what you would think would just make perfect sense. Why aren't we all working towards uh, finding a way to fix things more easily uh, rather than have to buy new stuff all the time? Crazy. So that was exactly what I, I did. I sort of took all of this kind of um, questions and struggles and I said, okay, here's one thing that I think I can try to make it easier. In my neighborhood, I'm going to open a repair shop. I'm going to get a bunch of theater artists to come work in it and we're going to fix people's broken things and charge them for it. And that was like a, a really interesting way of like narrowing down this whole big problem and, and crystallizing it into this one little experiment. And so we did a pop-up shop for three weeks and, and, and people went nuts, they loved it. And they all came and they were all, just like you just said, they were all talking about how frustrated they are with the system that they feel like it's crazy that you can't get something fixed. And oh, I, my grand, you know, there used to be a fix-it guy on Dykeman Street and he's gone now, you know? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, um, and this, this really, we heard this really overwhelming sense of frustration and we felt like we had hit a nerve. So then we kept doing it and we did it for seven years. We did these little pop-up shops and that is really what the, what, what the book is about, though it wound up being more, more than just about repair. It wound up being about that frustration, really, that, that sense that this whole system uh, could be better and should be better and 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 really can be better with just some small changes. Mm-hmm. And how did the TED Talk come about? That was, um, oh my God, you're going to laugh at this. So <laughs> I teach at Barnard College. You're getting all the, all the, the, the embarrassing secrets out. So I teach at <laughs> That's my College. evil ploy as an interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I was teaching a class around this time when I was starting the repair shops um, and this was a set design class. And I told, I, okay, I had been at, this is a little bit of a story, but it's funny in the end. I had been at a preschool auction for my kid and you know, at these auctions, they're always trying to raise money and then so they give you too much wine and you're all primed mm-hmm. to, to yeah. buy things you don't need, like pillows with I know it. on them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the auction came around. I don't buy the stuff obviously, but the auction came around and a woman, um, she was selling, um, voice lessons and lo and behold my little paddle went up and my husband was like oh is that for Luke our son those voice lessons and I was like no it's for me and so I took these singing lessons three singing lessons I don't know what possessed me I think it had to do with this project I was working on and like feeling like I I had something to say 
So especially if you consider I had been working backstage for so many years, exactly. right? I'm not an actor. Yeah. And yet I was like, I have something to say. And somehow in the back of my, you know, brain, I thought these singing lessons were part of that. So I did the singing lessons and I went into my classroom and I was trying to excite my students about getting out of their comfort zone. And I said, I'm going to ask you this semester to work on things that will be challenging. And, um, and if you go out of your comfort zone, you know, I'm right there with you. I'm taking these singing lessons. So if you go there this semester and you do the work, I will sing for you at the end of the semester. Uh-huh. And, then, and then I forgot about it. <laughs> and can, sorry, can you just tell me, what are you teaching? This was a set design class. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, nothing to do with singing. Yeah. And then we get to the end of the semester. I've completely forgotten. And I'm like, congratulations thank you so much for your work like see you in the fall and this kid in the back of the class raises his hand (laughs) there's always one (laughs) he's like professor goldmark you told us that if we did the work and really stretched and did amazing work you would sing for us and you just told us we did a great job like are you gonna sing so i i said um you're right you called me and i'll do it so i got up in front of this class i can't sing i'm a horrible singer and I sang Amazing Grace a cappella, not very well. And they were so warm and supportive and so appreciated their professor, like letting herself look like an idiot in front of them. And one of the students in the class was organizing this TEDx conference. And she had heard a little bit about the repair shops. And after that day of singing, of putting myself out there, she came up to me and she said, she came up to me and she said, um, will you speak at this TEDx conference? Isn't that funny? That's brilliant. I love it. So isn't that fascinating because people, she was obviously drawn to your vulnerability and your ability to put yourself out there. And I think, you know, if you think about Ted and I've done a talk as well, you, the spirit of it is, it's not just the spreading of ideas, but it is the, the, the vulnerability and a human putting out an idea. Yeah. Uh, it is celebrated and it is part of TED culture. So it makes sense that she saw that moment and thought, ah, you got to come give a talk. That's good. Yeah. I never quite connected the dots as nicely as you just did. <laughs> mm, yeah. Fascinating. I love it. Okay. So, so the pop-up shops, where do we go from there? Did, did um, opportunity come from that? Were conversations had to, to make this something bigger? Yeah. So we, we started with that one shop and we really thought we were just going to do three weeks. Mm. Um, but we just, it just was so fun and so much energy and feedback from our customers um, that we thought we can't stop here. So we did another and another and another and over, we did it for seven years. And over those years, I realized at some point, just from listening to the customers that the story here, you know, I had started with this idea that this is about the environment and repair or consumption, but at some point for me, the story shifted in listening to my customers into something that, yes, about repair and circular economy and all of that. But it also, I also realized that there was this human side, these people who like me were so frustrated with this messed up system. Um, and so I wanted and, and particularly for me, again, remember the theater background surrounding stuff, surrounding homes. They were overwhelmed. They had clutter or they had this little pile of broken things they didn't know what to do with. They felt guilty. Some of them didn't know what to buy. They don't know how to buy things that are green or they don't know what to do when they're done with something. There was a lot of negative emotion around their stuff. So listening to those customers and that sense of frustration, I realized that that I felt like, actually, wait a minute, we shouldn't have to have all of these negative emotions about stuff. Like, yes, there are huge problems with consumption and production and toxicity and labor standards. Stuff is really messed up. Stuff is broken, as I always say. But at the same time, hold on a second, like stuff is central to who we are as people, as a species. It's like food, like it is basic. We sometimes don't realize it, but how long would you last without shelter, without clothing, without a tool? A day, a week? As human beings, we make things, we use tools, and we surround ourselves with stuff. Now, as modern humans, we surround ourselves with like way, way, way more stuff than maybe (laughs) maybe we need to, or certainly um, uh, not every culture has so much excess as ours does right now. 
but it made me feel like we can approach this problem also from a perspective of joy and health and um, a feeling that it's possible to do this right at an individual level, at the business level, and at the policy level. Mm. And that's what your book helps people kind of see, right? So just for people who are listening, Fixation, How to Have Stuff Without Breaking the Planet is the name of the book. Um, and it speaks to that so beautifully. Thanks. Yeah. And I, so I'm in the book, I, I, I'm leaning very heavily on the food movement, particularly the work of Michael Pollan, because I feel like that's something that many people are kind of already there with food. We've already, a lot of people already accept that food impacts our health, our happiness, our families, and our planet, right? Mm. And many It would people- be nice if governments around the world started <laughs> to say that, but yes, yeah. that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, maybe there's a lag there. <laughs> but like, it feels like the, you know, the cultural ethos were there. And I feel like there's a clear analogy with stuff. This is something we need. This is a joy and a blessing. We're lucky to have it, just like we're lucky to have good food. It helps define our identity. And just like food, with some simple steps, some looking back to the past, we can do it better. Mm, we really can. And in terms of, you mentioned business there, and obviously you have a lot of experience in the theatre side of the business. Have you, since um, that 2010, 2011 time, starting to talk to your directors about wanting to change materials, have you seen progress in your industry? Ooh, in the theatre industry? Not, not a lot in the US. More in the UK. There's some really exciting work in Australia, actually. Is from, there? Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. There's some really great work in Australia and the UK and, and internationally and Canada. And the US, we're going to get there. Um, the, <laughs> the most exciting work in terms of um, kind of circularity and reuse, actually, I think it's happening outside the theatre world. And it's, it is actually in, in um, certain companies. Funnily enough, fashion is doing some really interesting stuff, partly because they got such strong blowback from, from fast fashion, yes. rightfully so, mm. that there are some really exciting initiatives in terms of reuse and repair in the clothing and um, apparel industries. But sadly, no, I don't think, um, I don't th- think theater is yet paving the way as much as it might, considering the amazing wealth of talent and knowledge we have about reuse and repair. It's funny, it's all there in theater. We just need to kind of like um, shout it from the rooftops. Yeah, and you would think in an industry that often uh, set design costume, you know, they have. I would imagine you would have to be quite frugal often and you would have to like cut costs and and be really mindful. And so would that not force more consciousness around reuse and repurposing and, you know, being clever with turning something old into something new again? It absolutely does. And that's why theatre is so central to the work we did in our repair shops is that we have those skills in theatre and they're, they're in use all the time, like from the days of the Greeks until today, there is that, that culture of frugality, of care, of handcraft, of upcycling, of creativity, all of that's in theater. And, um, and it's this wonderful tradition. What the theater industry hasn't done yet is realize in a way, or the US is realize in a way that we need to like put that at the forefront. Like these old things we've been doing for years because we have no budget, are really powerful tools for climate action that we need to do in our industry and that we need to share and replicate for others as well. Mm. And so in terms of other industries and what you're seeing, um, is there anywhere that you're really inspired by? In term- because you'd be having more and more conversations in this space with more and more high up the chain decision makers, I'd imagine, uh, as an author now uh, and an advocate for so long. What's happening that's really exciting you? I'm going to pick like a couple levels because one of the things that I think as we think about the circular economy that I'm really interested in is this ecosystem that this these actions have to happen at all levels. So like at the local level, for example, I am consistently inspired and amazed at my local farmer's market. Like the work they're doing is so hard 
which small. one is local to you? Because I know oh, New in York, New York, so. it's called it's oh, it's Grow NYC and it's Inwood. Two hundred. Oh, amazing! Uh, yeah, up in it's it's a it's a beautiful market. It's all the New York markets, but that's mm. that's my market. <laughs> and uh, and the work, you know, I, it's hard. I know because we did our pop ups at, in the market for many years, and so being out there in the cold in the morning, it was hard work. And yet they're bringing this fresh food from local farms. It's amazing work, and I think it it is inspiring. And I think that idea of these local networks, like if you imagine my farmer's market connecting to all the other ones, it's so powerful. Yeah, it really is. And I think if what I'm inspired by with New York in the times that I've been, and I remember uh, going to Union Square Market, um, gosh, it would have been, say, eight, nine years ago. And then the seven years ago trip, a couple of years later, seeing the composting get going and like, and every time I've been, I've seen these incredible inroads made in one of the biggest cities in the world. So if we can start to create more uh, of these natural systems within the network of such a highly built mechanical system as a big city is, it inspires me greatly that this is possible on every level and everywhere. Exactly. And like the, that composting exactly at the green market, like the citywide composting in New York, it's on pause now due to COVID, but that citywide composting in New York would never have happened if it hadn't been for the farmer's market sort of pilot programs. So, so that's one level, right? Local. Then like I'm super inspired by um, some of the bigger businesses. There's some amazing startups and even all the way up to Ikea. Mm, that are I know. Yeah. incorporating reuse and repair into their business models, which is so exciting. And then the last level is policy, which for me is lagging, like as we said before, but there are some interesting things out there, like France just introduced um, a repairability index. Yes. And we're pushing for that here in Australia as well. There was a, uh, we were able to put in submissions to our government to say we have the right to repair because right now it is darn near impossible if you've got a washing machine to get it repaired for less than the cost of buying a new one, uh, which... I was just reading about right to repair in Australia, actually. The repairability index is, a, is, a, is related, but it's like that sticker. So you might find, like, instead of just energy efficiency, you would say, like, what's the repairability index of this nice. washing machine? But it's things like that, right to repair and on the policy level that, I, that I'm like, okay. And Sweden had that um, rebate for repair providers, a tax rebate. Oh, what a great idea. So you incentivize the second hand and repair economy. Exactly. And that's so important because it's so hard to make money. Mm -hmm. if, you know, in a, like in New York City, when I was paying, trying to pay living wages to New York City theater artists, and essentially you're competing against the wages that are being paid in manufacturing countries, right? Um, and now obviously the long-term solution is for fair wages for oh, manufacturing. Gosh. I really <laughs> want that for you guys. It's uh, literally every other country cannot understand why you would not pay people a living wage in a country like America. But, but globally too, like we need to have living wages in the countries overseas where our stuff is made. Which will make manufacturing competitive which, everywhere again. Exactly. Yeah. And we'll make it so that then we could afford to pay people to repair things in the US, even with our very low minimum wage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it gets so complicated quickly, but as I love it the does. way you started with what's the hopeful stuff and you can see it right at your local green market or right at like, you know, those community exchange you know, we have a neighborhood listserv where people are always exchanging things. And those things, those parts of the ecosystem, I think are really important. Really special. And I think, you know, a lot of people bag social media and Facebook all the time. And sure, there are things that I dislike as well. But the fact that there are buy nothing new groups and swap groups and uh, uh, marketplace to allow people to, you know, and Craigslist and Gumtree and, you know, whatever these things are called. Um, it has people realizing that, you know, oh, maybe I could actually, I'm not emotionally attached to a clothes dryer. Like maybe I could just get a secondhand one for a couple of hundred bucks instead of a new one. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. They're really powerful tools for that. It's, mm -hmm. it's unbelievable. Yeah. And, and so let's talk uh, sustainable business in the pandemic era, because this is something you've put a lot of thought into. 
Um, talk me through what you've been thinking as you've seen this um, us dive into this strange time. Well, this is a tough one because I wish I could say, you know, at the start of the pandemic, I thought, oh, maybe being home and the fact that hopefully coronavirus is helping to push a global shift towards realizing our fragility and understanding we need to deal with climate change. Like all, like all climate activists, I was sort of like, is there some way that this horrible year is gonna help us, you know, come to terms with what I think is, is ultimately a larger reckoning? And I don't know, that may still happen, but certainly I thought, will people change their consumption patterns in the long term for the better during the pandemic? And on the one hand, you have seen a resurgence of, uh, not resurgence, a, a growth of things like the buy nothing groups and, and, and um, some stuff like that that's exciting. But unfortunately, I don't, I don't know that that deep reckoning with our patterns of consumption has happened during this pandemic. I kind of, at least in the US, the this, this sort of statistics don't point to that. Um, which isn't to say it won't happen, um, but it's not like the easy answer of everybody being home for a year and being like, wait, I, I really don't need this much stuff. That doesn't seem to be the case across the board. Mm. Yeah, because I, it's, it's a dichotomy, isn't it? Because you get deprived in a state like we're all in right now in some way because you have had to detach from your normal, whatever that is. Um, and we hold on to the deprivation more perhaps than we start to think of opportunity and discovery and finding new connections. Um, yeah. and, and you and hear it all the time. You hear, you know, let's work towards getting back to normal. And it's like <laughs> normal kind of was not good uh, in so many ways. This is such a beautiful calling for us to redefine what normal should be and, um, and take into account those planetary, um, not planetary, our, our planet's survival and what it needs to thrive and in turn us. I guess... I guess while maybe my, you know, the stuff corner of the of the climate change problem hasn't, the needle may not have moved enormously during the pandemic. I do think the good news is that at least in the U.S., the the also with the election of Biden is clearly a big part of it. But there is a big difference, a big shift in the way people are talking and thinking about climate change, and that is pretty pretty exciting. I must say. Yeah, it it is exciting. Um, it's. It's great that it's being talked about again as uh, something we need to work on. That is definitely positive. I do sometimes worry as someone who has just spent the last three years researching sun and soil and photosynthesis and farming for my next book. Um, I really worry about this bizarre um, tech approach to synthesizing meat um, when you can't get anything to replenish soil like a, a trampling hoof of a cow. Like it's, uh, it's really, really interesting how um, sometimes people try to hijack debates when I, I feel like what we're talking about here is we simply need to focus on what is good and true because what is good and true actually works and it keeps us mindful and it keeps things from blowing out to excess. Uh, I, I agree. I, I get very worried by the super techno fix approach. Yes, me too. The mm. silver bullet, the geoengineering. Um, I just think history has proved over and over again that that type of, of, of problem solving just leads to more problems down the road. Like I, I feel like we, this is, this is, we've seen this before. It's like, oh, let's bring this new species in to solve this problem. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like that was the high tech solution of, you know, the Victorian era and it did not work. No. And it's the mentality of the silver bullet that really worries me because, because we cannot silver bullet our way out of this one. We just can't, it's too complex. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And in terms of speaking about policy and um, when governments do get involved, um, something that's always 
interests me and I kind of put it in my thoughts sometimes and then it just gets too complicated and I spit it back out. I think, ah, I'll think about that another time is economy. Like we have constructed this growth above all else, economy and structure. Um, And it is now very firmly linked to our notion and understanding of what prosperity is. And, uh, And I often just have a crack at thinking about how we can dismantle that without the whole world falling apart. Like how do we step off the never ending growth trajectory and still prosper as a species? Yes. I think about growth all the time. I have some students who sometimes they're like, we have to break down all of capitalism and maybe, (laughs) maybe they're right. I don't actually know, but um, I, the way I was thinking about it in the book is that, and it does relate to this kind of concept of the natural world, because of course, of course, growth is, 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 is natural. Like we do have to grow. Mm. We also have to decay. Um, and that's one of the sort of parts of natural cycles that our, our economic models don't reflect is they're all about the growth, but where's the sort of healthy decay or the mm, senescence or the, the circular you know? piece basically. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So when you look at the circular economy, you're like, Oh, this is interesting because this takes into account that growth is awesome. And also there is death and decay and that that is actually part of the cycle and it's building an economic model that, that, that begins to think about that. And for me in my, my work with repair and, and reuse, the very sort of simple little way that I try to talk about it is to say like, yeah, if your business model is only about making and selling more new stuff, if that's your definition of growth, then we have a major problem. But if you can begin to think about diversifying that business model so that you have income and i.e. growth from repair, from service, from reuse, from passing things on, which essentially is kind of like the death part of the cycle of, 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 of an object, like either, you know, passing it on to somebody else or remanufacturing. And if we can, if growth can begin to include in a healthy way, all of those steps in the process, then maybe there is a way that, that the economy could, could not be so damaging for our our economic models. Yeah, absolutely. And I've spoken to some inspiring businesses in fashion, in jewellery, in uh, food that really do uh, start to have started to bring in that decay piece and turning it into something new, um, which is really exciting. Uh, it, it's possible. And I think business is an opportunity rather than a hindrance. I think we have to we have to see it that way, right? Mm. Because again, like food and like stuff, it's part of what we do. You know, it's, we're, we're not gonna stop trading things and making things and exchanging products and services. So, um, and I don't think we're gonna, you know, I, I love buy nothing groups, but I don't think we're gonna remove money entirely from the equation mm. anytime in the near future. So let's figure out a way to do it better, I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, so what is our stuff telling us? I want to, as we head towards the end of um, this conversation, I, I want for people to sort of have things to think about and um, action in their own lives, you know, because conversation is great, but what action are we asking people to take here? And like, what do you feel could be a little template from your own life, your own experience that people could actually just take and use to start looking around and start thinking, oh, that thing that I tucked away in the garage that isn't working, like what's my next step with that? Because I know you talk about it in your book and, uh, but I thought maybe we could talk about it now. Sure. So I feel like there's like two questions in there secretly, the maybe not so secretly. The first is like, what is our stuff saying? And that comes back to like my, to my theater background, I think in terms of saying, understanding that we create worlds with our with our stuff around us many people understand that intuitively when you talk about clothing you know that yeah sure you're kind of creating or communicating creating an identity or communicating with your clothes but we do that with all of our stuff our homes everything around us and so i i do like to i hope that the book will help people begin to kind of read what they're saying a little more clearly yeah like 
part of that is knowing where your stuff comes from so that maybe you think you're saying, I have a nice living room with a nice couch, come sit in it. And actually part of what you're saying sadly is, you know, has to do with the fact that the couch is impregnated with toxic chemicals or was made by somebody um, who was separated from her child in unfair working conditions. And that's mm. not a story you really want to be telling, right? <laughs> no, certainly not a story that the brochure tells who tried to sell you the couch. <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's about that thing of like reading, understanding how you communicate with stuff, I think is, is, is actually an important part. And again, it doesn't have to be all bad. It can be kind of joyful and fun. Like, yeah, this is how I, this is how I like to live. I like a little clutter. I like this. I like that. We don't all have to, you know, there's no pattern we have to hew to in terms of our stuff. Mm. Um, and then the second part of what we can do this is these steps, right? So I mentioned earlier that I lean heavily on Michael Pollan's work because I think it's familiar to a lot of people and, and they have this intuitive understanding of, of the food advice he gives. Mm. So he says, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Yeah. And it's a framework literally everyone can work to no matter how you eat or what your preference or beliefs. And it's not like a diet. It's not a fad diet. Like don't eat this, don't eat that. It's actually the opposite of that. And as you said earlier, it's kind of returning to what's simple and true. So I'm trying to translate that for stuff very consciously to say that it's the, it's the same. So it's have good stuff, not too much, mostly reclaimed, care for it, pass it on. And the idea is that um, if you follow these simple steps that are very intuitive that you probably already understand to a large degree, you will be able to have stuff like as I say without breaking the planet without feeling as guilty and without feeling like you're living a story that isn't isn't one that you want to be living mm. I something that really resonated with me there and I kind of started blowing it up in my mind to a bigger version of that so it could really stick for people was the idea of like really looking at your couch and seeing its true story and uh, I think, you know, imagine if we all powerfully visualised, did the research work to find out who made it, where it comes from, really, really know. Um, and then you visualise that woman sitting on that couch crying, missing her child. Um, like, you ain't buying that couch. Like, you couldn't if you really, really came to full realisation of what that couch represented. If you were at the toxic fire retardant factory where they were all the spray wands were going all over the couch and then you pictured the the little um what are those things called in your lungs alveoli or something uh like trying to process those chemicals in your liver trying you know getting really yeah. confused and or picture those chemicals yeah. going into your breast milk yeah exactly <laughs> that's right and this is a huge part of, I think, the, um, the real change that can happen so quickly if we sit with things for a while. Um, and if you sit with them long enough, you can't accept them and you choose different. Right. And what's interesting there for me is like, sometimes there can be a moment like I had of paralysis or horror. I don't know what to do. I can't, you know. Mm every couch is toxic, you know, everything's terrible. Everything's trying to kill us. <laughs> yeah. But actually it is possible. It's, nothing's perfect, right? That's the other thing. You have to forgive yourself and forgive the world around you. Nothing's perfect. Um, Especially while we're on a learning journey. Nothing's perfect in a learning journey. Mm. But you can do better. And some of the ways are so easy and so simple, like, like buying a used couch realizing that maybe your your perception of the couch, the new couch, is like, oh, isn't it beautiful and awesome? And now all of a sudden you see it in a different way. You see it as kind of like compromised or, or toxic. And so maybe that helps you see a used couch in a new way to say, oh, maybe I can get this used one and it's a little more effort for me and maybe I need to get it recovered, whatever. But but your your perception can shift by, as you said, really looking. Mm. I love it. Really have a look. That's, that's the theme here. Um, thank you so much. This was a beautiful conversation. I'm so excited about your book uh, and what it's going to do for the world. 
it's available on Book Depository, I'd imagine. Um, I try not to mention the A word, but um, <laughs> uh, and uh, locally here as well in Australia, I've already checked that out. Um, what is your next step? What are you working on next? What is your big hairy goal? Mm, that's a tough one because I have so many exciting projects that I'm working on right now. Um, but for me, this journey of the repair shops, it was kind of like that story of the song or finding my voice was like shifting from, okay, I have this knowledge about theater and stuff and I have this frustration about stuff and can I put it together and maybe say and do something that will help people do this tiny corner of, of, of their lives better, right? So I don't know what the goal is there. I guess the goal is, um, yeah, there's no goal. I'm excited to be um, doing this work and I'm, I'm excited to be sharing it and learning from other people who are doing it in their sphere. That's what's so exciting is when you realize like we all have our little areas of expertise and we will get there when we all of us in our in our little sphere put our expertise towards towards this work of I hesitate to even say climate action. It's more than that. It's kind of like how we live in the world as humans. Mm, agree. You know? It's big. How we treat each other, you know. Um, that's the real work and the climate action is the the beneficiary of doing right. that work mm. like it's not a coincidence that the this this deep reckoning with race and inequity happened in the united states in this year like it's it is connected it's questions of how we treat each other and how we treat the earth and the, the um moving away from this from this model we've been in for so long mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just editing a part of my next book uh, the other day and uh, it was about our silos that we all fight from and we're all outraged by each other in and we're all so separate and you've like carved out your little space of the tribe where you belong and then everything that has even a remotely different view from one of the aspects of your tribe is instantly shunned. Uh, that's not how we do things here. And this is how you end up with single issue voters getting sucked into uh, dangerous silos, uh, unfortunately, because you can you, they harness your passion for one thing and then drag you into another thing. Uh, thank God I studied European political science in the 20th century to be able to see this stuff. I feel very lucky to have had that education. Um, but I feel like for us to actually heal, whether it's food, whether it's, you know, everyone fighting about vegan versus paleo, or whether it's racial inequality and the way we treat each other in society and really understanding that there's a huge group of people that have been mistreated and unjustly treated for so long. Um, we, at the end of the day, have to want to reconnect. We have to want to work on our overlaps rather than our differences. And we need, that is, I think, where we can all step up on an individual level of leadership um, because we could be waiting for a long time to find brave leaders that lead us there. Uh, and uh, no, we can't wait. Um, so I, for one, love finding my overlaps with my fellow humans. Um, and, uh, and I think that's really going to be a huge part of us um, starting to realize that, you know, there's a, there's a different way to do things. Yeah. Mm. Well, thank you. Uh, everybody go get the book. It's uh, is it downloadable in a, in a time when people prefer sometimes that so e we can do a Kindle ebook. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Great. So you don't need to even use paper yeah. if you don't want to. Or buy it used. Oh, buy it used. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Sandra. It's been absolutely beautiful chatting to you and I wish you all the best with the book and beyond. Thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to seeing your next book. It sounds interesting. I like that little tidbit. <laughs> well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at Lotox Life or one word or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life. 
uh, and of course, lowtoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low-tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about $29.30 US about 27 euro and about 25 pounds, you get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lowtoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lowtox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.